Hey guys, so welcome back to the Black and Raw podcast. I am your host, Tino Kudotondarai Vunzabaya. I ain't going to repeat that. Here is a podcast that has created a dialogue and the space for black men to be their most authentic selves. Now, my guest today is Mark Togo, and Mark has written a book called Cultural Silence and Wounded Souls. Black men speak about mental health. And I thought for Mental Health Awareness Month, I might as well end these well in the month's conversation with a mental health chat and you know when mark told me about his book it just sounded great and i really like the mission that he's on and even just about him exploring his own mental health and how therapy helped him and how gratitude and journaling had really helped him with his mental health and get him through some tough times and in this episode you hear about that you know we also discuss about the impact of writing and how that sort of helped him with his mental health. We talk about some of the issues that black men face, you know, loneliness, depression, and some of the other things that are going on within society and how those impact us too. And so this is a really powerful conversation for anybody that wants to know more about mental health or wants to even know, you know, about their brothers and sisters that are struggling out there, then, you know, listen to this conversation. And because you're here, I'm hoping that you're going to listen to the rest of it <laughs> but i really want to thank you guys for listening to this episode um i really thank you for all of your engagement i'd love to hear some of your feedback on what you think of this episode and so here is my episode with mark togo so mark welcome to the black emerald podcast it's really good to have you on thank you thank you tino it's an honor and i'm pleasure to be here with you no, that's brill. That's brill. Um, and so we can we can sort of just get get into the meat um, of the episode. And I, when when you, when I saw your message on LinkedIn, your book looked really interesting to me. And you know, it's Mental Health Awareness Month, and so I thought it'd be quite appropriate to to get you on um, and to talk about it. So thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Um, and so, Mark, you, you've created a book um, about black men's mental health. And I guess I just maybe want to start with what made you want to write um, this book about black men's mental health? Here's my book. <laughs> there you go. And anyone listening, you can't see it, but that means you just need to watch on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. And it's on Amazon. Cultural Silence of Women's Souls, Black Men Speak About Mental Health. Um, well, initially, uh, you know, God put this on my spirit about four years ago, and I wanted to write about my own mental health journey. I wasn't sure if it was just going to be an essay or a poem or a haiku. I wasn't sure. I just needed to express what I had been holding on to for quite some time because I was diagnosed with uh, generalized anxiety disorder and moderate depression in February of 95. Okay. And for many, many years, I've never talked about it. And you can't take a look at what you don't talk about. You can't change what you don't admit. And so, you know, God gave me the courage to start writing. And then I called a friend of mine who's also a writer. And, you know, we just decided maybe we ought to put together a book. So we thought, let's get maybe 15 to 20 guys, ask them to tell their stories, you know, some personal, some professional, to get that balance. And four years later, you know, Da, 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 da. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, you know, it's crazy because you mentioned LinkedIn. That's where I got a lot of the uh, context from. Mm. Most of the men uh, in this uh, anthology I've never met before. Never even had a conversation. Just okay. We live in a digital world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It That's just started awesome. with me just wanting to talk about my own experiences with anxiety, depression, trauma, stress, 
and just kind of get that out of my head and, and just really, you know, get some freedom, some relief, some clarity, some insights and perspective. No, that sounds really um, interesting. And I think, as you said, you don't like you can only start start to process something once you start to understand it or even just start to talk about it and start to deal with it. Um, I want to know, you said that you got diagnosed in 95. Um, When did you like, how did that look for you? Like, how did your mental health look throughout the years? Uh, Three months prior, I was diagnosed HIV positive. Mm. So. Uh, that was in December of 94. And um, I remember seven years prior, my partner at the time, he was diagnosed HIV positive as well. At that time, doctors were telling people, you have six months to live. You know, mm-hmm. and I've actually written a play called Six Months to Live. Um, so I had those fears, you know, about will I live, will I wake up tomorrow? So that created a lot of anxiety, a lot of worry, a lot of nervousness. I was just became obsessed with my own demise. And so, you know, they wanted me to take medication because the United States is all about drugs. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's not about healing. It's about medication, you know, Big not meditation, but medication. And so um, I had some worries about that and I didn't trust the medical system. Um, so I started writing, you know, and writing is very therapeutic. You know, it really gives me a chance to get it out of my head into my heart and um, try to get, like I said, some clarity and insight and perspective. So I just needed some release and I'm glad I got that. Which led me to therapy, you know, and ironically enough, I thought therapy was for rich, crazy white people. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that. We've all heard that one before, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, but you know, I I had a friend and she, uh, she was in therapy and I was attracted to her spirit and, you know, she had quite a life, but she had found some self-acceptance and self-love. So I wanted what she had and I took her suggestion. So I, I was in and out therapy for about 10 years. It was very helpful. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, I mean, being diagnosed with HIV, definitely, I guess, especially when you're being told you've got six months to live. And I think there was probably a lot of propaganda during that time of, you know, all, a, sort of a negativity towards people with HIV and stuff like that. Um, and not an understanding of like how you can actually live a fruitful life with it. Um, so it makes sense that, you know, your mental well-being was affected by something which is quite life-changing. Um, and, having, and as you said, you're thinking about your demise every day like that, that, that has an effect on you. That definitely has an effect on you. Say it again. I said that thinking of your demise every day definitely does have an effect on you. So it makes sense you know, that your body sort of responded with an, an anxiety of oh, what's going to happen. Definitely, definitely had a major impact on my mental health. Yeah. So I would like to, I'd like to find out sort of, you said that you had got people for your books, um, that you had got different men um, to come and talk about their experiences and that you never even met a lot of them before you had even started talking about it, Um, which is interesting in terms of how you got men to start talking about something which is so sort of personal to them. And so I guess, how was it interviewing these men about their mental health for the book? Um, It was... It was different because uh, there's 30 different men. I may have had six telephone conversations. Mm. You know, we we live in a digital world and people are more likely to communicate through Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter 
or email or texting to pick up a phone and have a conversation. That's just the world that we live in, like it or not. Social media has really kind of like shifted the way we communicate. And so I would just connect with somebody and tell them I have an idea. Are you interested? I got a lot of rejection, a lot of apathy, a lot of indifference. But eventually I got men who said they were interested. And I asked them, I gave them a word count. And they would email me and I would look it over and we would go back and forth until we agreed on something. And, you know, that's pretty much how we got it done. You know, it took took a few years. Uh, at one point, uh, Tino, um, my co- computer crashed and I lost everything. Oh, wow. Like I lost everything. And th- this book is 148 pages. Poof, all gone. But thank God I had the presence of mind to print out each of the essays, because they're mostly essays, and I had to type it up, you know, with my hand. I'm not a great typer, but a day at a time. And I was very despondent. I was in a dark place for months. I started to feel like maybe this is not God's will for me. I started to feel like a loser. I was embarrassed. I didn't save the, the information. People mm-hmm. would tell me to get the chip, and I wouldn't listen. I was procrastinating, but, you know... Uh, through perseverance, resiliency, steadfastness, I was able to put it all together and here we are. Yeah. Yeah. That's a long process. And whenever you're doing anything, like even when I was at uni and like your computer crashes and you're like, oh my gosh, all that work that I've just done, like everything that I've got is now gone. Um, But I don't know, did I guess going back through the stories again and hand typing them out, was that, was there any sort of benefit to that? Like, were you able to, I guess, digest the stories even more? Yeah. It really helped me to appreciate the process and not focus on the outcome, you know, and I was able to take another look at the contribution. They're, they're mostly essays. There's a couple guys who've done poetry. There's one guy, he's an actor. He did a monologue. Mm-hmm. There's another guy, he's a rapper. Uh, he's from Nigeria. He um, contributed some song lyrics, but they're mostly essays. And to reread them over and over again really helped me to appreciate the fact that God used me as a vessel to tell their stories in a way in which they may have not been told before, because I think that Black people have the greatest stories never told. And even Maya Angelou says that there's no greater agony than, than a story untold. And for most of us, we go through our whole lives and we don't tell people what we've been through. And so on the epitaph, it doesn't say trauma, but it should, because we all have to deal with the trauma of being brought here against our will, never being paid for it, and still suffering under white supremacy, white patriarchy, white privilege, white power, and a system that doesn't um, value us as human beings. You know, we're still considered less than. And a lot of us feel that way, you know. So um, my computer crashed, but but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. That's very yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, thank um, God for prayer and meditation. Yeah. You said that one of the guys was from Nigeria, um, which is really good. Like, what was the demographics of the men that you got? Like, were they all, obviously not, they weren't all from US because you said one was from Nigeria, but where were the locations that you got people from? Uh, Most are from the US, uh, from around the US and Northeast and Midwest and South. But there's one guy from Nigeria. There's one guy from London. There's one guy from uh, another part of the UK. There's one guy from the Caribbean. There's one guy from the Dominican Republic. So I wanted to get a cross-section um, of, of men from different perspectives, different, works of, different walks of life, 
So you've got advocates, you've got clinicians, educators, businessmen, filmmakers, journalists, lawyers, musicians, and they all are between ages maybe 25 and 65. And they all have something unique to tell. Mm. And it's really a beautiful mosaic. I've I've had women say, uh, thank you, because I'm going to give this to my nephew. I'm going to give this to my brother. I'm going to give this to my husband. I'm going to give this to my coworker. So even though the book centers Black men, and I wanted to do that, um, the women who have been supportive have told me that it really has helped them in their relationship with other men. Yeah, definitely. I I guess also for... um... For the women, it's like, obviously, as men, we find it quite hard to talk about our feelings. So for those that are in relationships with men, for those that, you know, have brothers, have uncles and nephews, you know, it's a it's a window into what they may be thinking and feeling without necessarily having to have that discussion with them yet. Because, I mean, you can try, but sometimes, you know, men aren't willing to open up and actually have those conversations. Exactly. Exactly. So I think you know, the idea is that people will be able to identify, connect, and relate. And even if they can't bring themselves to say, I can identify, maybe they know somebody who has been to a similar experiences and they may want to give the book to someone without accusing them or labeling them or implying that they have some type of a mental health issue, but just saying, I came across this book, you might want to read it. Yeah, definitely. Um, did you see any, in terms of, uh, we're talking about the different locations that people are from. Did you see anything specifically about maybe the struggles that men had in, you know, Nigeria or the Dominican Republic or London or in the USA? Were there much differences or was there more similarities in the stories? I would say that there are more similarities uh, because they're all writing about anxiety, depression, isolation, loss. Um, PTSD, stress, trauma, uh, paranoid schizophrenia, suicide ideation, those issues transcend geography, you know, mm. and we're united by our biology. So even though a guy in Los Angeles has a different worldview than a guy in, in London, they still have the same feelings. So, so that's the, the common thread is how they feel. Maybe the difference is how they react to it, how they respond. But I didn't notice like people in Philadelphia being different than somebody in New Mexico and how they dealt with it. I'm just kind of dealing with this as black men and their trauma and their pain. And the fact that they're able to write about it for me, that's part of the healing process. Yeah, definitely. I've had a lot of people um, on my podcast that I've talked to that have gone through mental health or even have gone through traumatic events. And they've always said that writing is sort of a therapy for them. And even for me, I'm quite fortunate that I've got a sort of a good mental health usually. Um, even when stuff is going bad, like I've always found that writing or even just voice noting how I'm feeling at that moment really just... Like it's weird how it just it's still there, but it sort of takes the edge off. It, it it sort of is a release that once it's down on paper, it's like I might still feel crappy, but I f- there's something different after you've done that, you know. Yeah, writing and putting on paper, it becomes that much harder to deny my true nature, and it kind of loses the feelings, lose their power mm. because I'm no longer consumed because it's not on the inside anymore, and I get to see it. And then it becomes real. And then now I can actually talk about what I've been thinking and feeling because I didn't really have a voice 
Like I didn't have an emotional vocabulary. Most of us don't. And so we don't know how to say, I feel insecure. I feel disrespected. I feel like in, in the black community, we say, now we say, uh, cause it's something different every 10 years. <laughs> it always changes the lingo. Right? So now we say, uh, I feel some type of way, right? Are you familiar with that phrase? Yeah, I've heard of it. I've heard of it. But that doesn't tell me anything, no. right? About it, there's how no description. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we do. It's a, like Paul Lawrence Dunbar talks about the mask, you know? And so we have that, I feel some type of way, but do you feel disrespected? Do you feel hurt? It's really hard for a black man to say, I feel hurt. Mm. We'll say, I feel piss, pissed off. But to say, I feel hurt, that means I got to be vulnerable. Yeah. I got to be transparent, which creates fear, the fear of the unknown. Will I be accepted? Will I be judged? Will I be criticized? You know, will I be feminized? You know, because you get called a faggot, a sissy, a punk, all that kind of stuff as a kid. And so you learn very on, maybe I shouldn't talk about this and that because no one's going to love me if I tell you how I really feel. Yeah, it's crazy how when you think of it, like women have the vocabulary to express how they're feeling usually. But it's also because they've been socialized since they were children in terms of like the girls hang out and they all talk together and they're they can openly share what's going on with them, whereas the lads, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that it's, you know, playing sports with the boys isn't fun, but we don't do much sit down and talking. It's more action. It's more, I would say fun, but just you're doing other stuff rather than sitting and talking. And even then, when you maybe express your emotions with your mates when you're younger, even when you're older, to be honest with you, just depends who you're friends with. They might be like, oh, like you said, oh, stop being a faggot. Stop being this, stop being that. Oh, why, why are you being a sissy? You know, we don't share our emotions or you right. might've got that from your father. You might've got that from your uncle. So even the people that it comes from as well can have such a reinforcement on your life. Um, there's a, a journaling book that I, that I used to write in and for anyone that keeps listening to the podcast, um, everyone keeps hearing me saying I need to do better with my journaling, but I definitely do. Um, but in the book, um, and it's called The Mind Journal for anybody that wants to check it out, I'll put it into the show notes. Um, but it's got all these different feelings, like, and like different words for them. And, you know, it's not just, oh, angry, sad. It's, I can't remember all the words for them, but there's such an extensive word and it's just just a little tick. You just tick how you're feeling. And that can so help you just be like, okay, yeah, this is how I'm feeling or that's how I'm feeling. And then you start to learn more words to describe what's going on with you, which can help you, but then also help anyone that's involved with you or around you. If you can better express the words that you are, what the feelings that you're going through. I think journaling is a great tool. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, I have a friend who gave me what he called a feeling chart. Mm. And it was like 25 faces, which a different expression. And underneath each face, each face would it would say sad, happy, um, gloomy, uncomfortable. There would be a word to describe the face, and it helped me to like make a connection. It took me a while because it just it was all like German. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I never learned how to talk about how I feel. Yeah, it was weird. It was native. And you know, we live in a society where people don't ask you how you feel, they ask you what you do. So you go to a social gathering, the first question is, what do you do? So they want to know about your work or your school life. No one wants to know about your mental life, your emotional journey. Mm -hmm. you know, people don't care about that. They want to know, 
what institution do you go to? And then you can start bragging about, oh, I got a master's degree and this and that. <laughs> right? But no one wants to hear that you actually are hurting mm. or that you're sad or that you're uncomfortable or that you feel insecure or whatever human emotion you have. That's not part of our natural social consciousness. And, and you write about girls. They are socialized differently. But also, um, there's a guy named Dr. Ed Garns, who someone I respect. He has a podcast with Motown Lee. And they talk about mental health all the time. And he talks about how Black men have historically not engaged in professional um, therapy, but we've had therapeutic conversations. Mm. So we talk um, in the locker room. We talk at the baseball field. We talk um, at grandma's kitchen table. We talk in the carpool. We talk at the wedding ceremony. So we have places where we actually, the barbershop, we talk, we have therapeutic conversations. We're just not collectively invested in going to a professional because we have all these messaging about he's crazy, he's soft, he's weak. And so we have to reprogram our ideas around manhood. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. What are what are some of the issues that you are seeing amongst men? Definitely in this sort of 21st century. Some of the issues. Oh, my God. Uh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> you know, we have what I, I call um, manhood anxiety. Manhood anxiety. Mm-hmm. So um, when two men greet each other, they may not feel comfortable displaying affection because if they display affection, they may be accused of being homosexual. So in other parts of the world, it's natural for a, a man to kiss another man on the, on the, on the, on the lips, the cheek, the forehead, the neck. But here, you know, uh-uh. <laughs> homie, don't play that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. So you have that type of anxiety where two guys, they naturally do care about each other, but they're afraid to hug each other. And I think that's a huge issue because it kind of like distorts our natural sense of of, of um, connection and longing and brotherhood, that touch. We're afraid to touch each other because we're afraid we're going to be labeled as little Nas X. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> <laughs> so, we have all these issues about being strong and tough and controlled and we don't want to be seen as vulnerable. You know, so that's, that's one issue. Um, you know, obviously, for me, um, uh, white supremacy rears its ugly head in, in so many ways. In the way we are um, kind of can't, can't find a job, not able to vote. You know, you have mass incarceration. You have the prison industrial complex. That's a huge issue, right? So you have a black man and a white man with the same drug, and they're penalized completely differently. Mm. Like in America, they have this thing called the 100 to 1 disparity. And when Obama became president, he reduced it to 18 to 1. So if you have five grams of cocaine and you're black, you know, they offer you 30 years of prison sentence. If you're white, you get 100 hours of community service. Yeah, which is crazy. So the same substance, but you're treated differently because the criminal justice system sees us as criminal anyway. So we don't feel safe. You know, mm-hmm. cops are starting up, stopping us. We have this thing called stop and frisk. Yeah, we have stop and, and searches, yeah. Yeah, so you know you go to jail not because you've committed a crime, but because you've been arrested, and you can't pay the bail, which is racist. So we got so many issues, man. We our issues have issues. <laughs> <laughs> there's layers. There's layers. Yeah, it's like an onion. Something. 
Um, I remember, we, you know, before we started this conversation, um, you saw my Ava DuVernay shirt for anyone else there. Yeah. Um, and she made a she made a film called, um, I, 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 it's about the Twelfth Amendment. Um, no, the Thirteenth Amendment. The Thirteenth Amendment. Yeah, yeah, Thirteenth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is absolutely amazing. Like amazing yeah. in terms of like just how she did the documentary, but it's very interesting to see how the incarceration system works in the U S and even you said about bail, it's crazy that people will put themselves into debt to get someone out of bail for something which may not even really seem like a real issue. Like, you know, getting caught with um, cocaine or, you know, there's people in jail that have now been in jail for years because they had weed on them. Um, and it's like, and now, which is the irony, I remember I was listening to something, um, and they were talking about like the irony of that now that weed is legal in a lot of places in the U S it's like, we've got white men making money, like big business money off of marijuana. Yet there's people rotting in prison that got 30 years because they had five grams of weed on them. And usually it's black people. And so it's if anybody that wants to watch that, also want to put it into the show notes, um, <laughs> so you can check it out. No, that was a powerful documentary. I've seen it mm. several times, and I like the fact that she used different people from different backgrounds to share about how that amendment affects our society today. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's just sort of crazy that it was literally like it's like yeah, they they abolished slavery, but then in the 13th Amendment, it's like, yeah, but if you do anything wrong, then we're basically going to kind of put you back into that. Except um, for criminals or except for indentured servants. So. Yeah. And so we're still perceived our, as criminals. Our humanness, you know? There are cases around the country where Black men are still called boy. Mm-hmm. We're still called boy. 55, 60 years old man walking down the street, hey boy, like you still get that in 2023. Which is crazy. Can you, can you, and I was talking to someone the other day, but can you explain just the context of that um, in terms of why that is sort of so demeaning? Why that exists? Why, yeah, why it exists, but also why it is so demeaning to black people in the US, especially. Well, I mean, we came here against our will, unlike anybody else, and we were immediately put on the auction block. You know, now we're on TikTok. You know, and so, you know, we were stripped naked. Uh, our families were destroyed. Our religion was taken away. Our customs, our music, our art, our dance, our education. Um, and also, um, we did, we were not perceived as men when we first came here. So we were perceived as animal, um, savage, criminal. So we were racialized. We did not have a gender when we first got here. You know, so... For a long time, we never felt, and many of us still don't feel like whole human beings. You know, the, there's an article in the Constitution that says that we are three-fifths of a human being. Mm-hmm. And that's how we're treated by the police and by the law. And so, you know, there's a law that says that black that black man has no rights that a white man has to respect. It means Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896. And the law still treats us that way. And so a cop can shoot us and kill us, and that cop doesn't go to prison. That cop still keeps his job and gets a book deal, which turns into a movie, <laughs> and he actually gets rewarded for killing my brother. And because we see it over and over again, that trauma becomes normalized, and we're no longer outraged. 
And so we don't do anything. We just, it, it has become normal to feel like we don't belong in a country that brought us here against our will. And it's it's really sad and it's really unfair and it bothers me a lot to see how our brothers are mistreated in this society. And, you know, this book is an opportunity for us to really talk about how we feel, to take back our power um, and to change the way we see ourselves, to, to shift the paradigm and to start to view ourselves as human, as real, as valuable, as respected, as affirming, um, as loving, as feeling people, as flawed, as complex, you know, as nuanced. We have many layers. We're not, everybody's not going to be LeBron James. You know, no the NBA does not want another LeBron James. They're going to, to Asia and, you know, baseball used to be America's pastime. Now everybody pays baseball is coming from the Dominican Republic or Cuba or Honduras. So black men slowly have been moving away from society because we're not valued. We're, we're, we're still not wanted. You know, we're still America's most hunted, but we're not wanted. Mm. That's deep. That's deep. Yeah. And I guess just the the word boy, just sort of, as you were saying, we've got genderless. So it's sort of like, it's like, no, you're like, it's demeaning, isn't it? It's sort of like, no, you're not worth the respect of being a man. Like you don't, I, I, you're not, I'm not valuing you as the man that you are. I'm going to demean you and, you know, I guess make you childlike so I can enforce my will upon you to a certain extent. Exactly. Exactly. So we always have to deal with the the idea that we're not seen as men, we're seen as boy. And, you know, when you're a boy, you don't really have a lot of authority or dominion and people can kind of like have their way with you. And that's pretty much how it's going. Yeah, it's a it's it's definitely um, I think there's definitely sort of challenges um, that we sort of face as black men. And I, I know there's a lot of discourse out there where it's like, oh, men are complaining um you know when they're and is you to be fair it's usually said by women which is one was a bit of a weird one it's like oh why why are men complaining about what they're going through but i think there is i think there is a real thing where um and obviously we can only speak to black men and maybe that applies more to white men um but even just for men in general i think there's um there's been sort of a disconnect in terms of that. We've had female empowerment, which is awesome, which is great. But there is sort of, there has been, I guess, a neglect, a neglection, and men have been sort of neglected in a certain extent that we are, that we're not able to express our emotions. We're not able to, you know, be vulnerable. And these are things like emotional intelligence. These are things which are needed for us in society. And so I think that has been sort of quite neglected and, you know, it sort of just gets brushed away under the carpet of, oh, you're a man, it's okay. You know, you you just deal with it. Whereas I actually know we need to talk. We need the spaces to be able to talk. We need to be able to allow men to cry. You know, I don't know if you're on TikTok, but um, I see so many TikToks of this, like, oh, oh, if a man cries, it gives me the ick, like, and it's like, you know, it turns me off. And I'm like, a man expressing their emotions turns you off? What, because we're not manly anymore? Like, is is that what we're defining manly by? Whether you can suppress your emotions? Um, and it's it's quite sad because there'll be men out there that are suffering 
and they're going to just get viewed as, oh, you're not really a man if you if you talk about your emotions, if you feel, if you if you show love. But then on the other aspect as well, there's probably a lot of women complaining, saying that the men aren't talking, the men aren't being emotional enough. But from all sides, men and women, you're getting stigmatized for not talking. So it's it's a bit of a I don't know if a catch twenty two is the word, but bit of a conundrum really. Yeah, and I, I understand how women have had to deal with a heteronormative misogyny uh, for centuries, mm. you know, uh, in terms of um, the institutions, the educational system, um, you know, women still making 76 cents on a dollar, et cetera. Uh, so they still have to fight those battles to be to be seen and heard and viewed and respected. Um, and yet... I think some women may not be used to a black men actually saying how he feels. And so they may feel threatened, you know, because I'm I'm not on TikTok, by the way. <laughs> 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 I, yeah. I, <laughs> Don't get on it. I, I, I do know on social media there, there's a lot of um, male bashing, mm. you know. Um, and, you know, women, for example, um, you know, we have this whole uh, Me Too movement. Right. And we have the, the contemporary gender theorists. We have the feminism, you know, um, so women are more likely to get tenure in American uh, higher learning institution. You know, there's very few places where you can go and learn about black male studies in college. That's just a fact. It's not my opinion. And so you look at something like Black Lives Matter. Right. Black Lives Matter was started by three women who responded to George Zimmerman being acquitted for murdering Trayvon Martin, a black boy. Yet, their organization had no funding or programs or services for Black boys and men. Zero. So meanwhile, all around the world, people are shouting Black Lives Matter. Places, all white spaces where they all got signs, Black Lives Matter, and yet the organization in its conception did not fund or have programs or services for Black boys and men. And so even though they responded to Trayvon Martin, other boys like Trayvon Martin did not benefit because they were serving women, women of color, LGBTQIA+, the elderly, immigrant, everybody but black boys in them. Now, if I say this on television, you know, I'm going to jail. Yeah, you're getting, you're getting, no, you're <laughs> you know getting canceled, which is even worse than jail. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but this is, this is the truth. Black Lives Matter as an organization did not benefit black boys in men. They got up to $90 million in donations. Not one penny went to an organization or institution that serves black boys in men. And now they're just, they're hashtag now. Mm. You know what I mean? So that's what we're fighting against is, is, is our voice. You know, we got one black man on Supreme Court. <laughs> it's like, you know, we really still are fighting and fighting to be heard, to be seen. And you're right. It does seem like we're complaining. But that's just the word that they use to shut us up. You know, like they told LeBron James to shut up and dribble. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So people really don't like to hear black men talk about their feelings because they really are uncomfortable and they don't know what to think about it. And they don't know how to handle it. It's it's unusual, but you know we're here, and we, we need to we need safe spaces to talk about how we feel, so we don't harm ourselves or other people. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And 
Yeah, it's 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 a bit of a weird one where where we exist as black men, um, because obviously we benefit from the patriarchy, but then there's also the element of race that you know is discriminatory and affects us as well. Um, and for black women, they've got race and they've got sexism that are facing them too. So it's it's a very odd place to exist in. Yeah, but that's another misconception, Tino. Um, patriarchy does not benefit black men and neither does privilege. Patriarch and privilege was constructed um, during the times when we were on the plantation. Mm. And it's really rooted in uh, genealogy because when we were born here against our will, the term gender was associated with family and race, not biology or sex. And so white women owned our children and they told them how to think and behave. They were not seen as boys and girls. They were seen as property, right? And so we, there was no gender when it comes to people of African descent who, who were brought against their will. And so when you talk about patriarchy and privilege, there's this idea that patriarchy encompasses all men because of their gender. Mm. That's not how that term was created. That's not how it was realized. Patriarchy was about genealogy, right? It was not about gender because we didn't have a gender when we got here for a long time. And even now, if you think of gender, you may not think of men. Women have co-opted, this is my opinion, women have co-opted the term gender, right? Just like when people talk about feminism, feminism was rooted in patriarchy. Feminism complements patriarchy. There's a book called um, The Man Not by Dr. Tommy Curry. It's about okay. race, class, uh, genre, and the limits of black manhood. And he talks about how terms like gender and race did not benefit our people when we got here. They've been misconstrued. Even Alice Walker, termed, she coined the term womanist because she understood that feminism was rooted in the racism. So when you talk about feminism, the people who have power are not black women. Yeah. True. So when something happens to a woman, they don't ask a black woman how you think about it. They ask a white woman because a white woman is considered to be the experts on all things female. Same thing with a black man. If something happens to a man, they're not going to ask a black man, what do you think? Because a black man is not considered to be intellectual. He doesn't have that capacity in our society's mind, our, their racist mind. They don't see us as who we are. This is another reason why we got to talk about how we feel because we all have to deal with these microaggressions, right? So you go to the, the hospital and the woman behind the counter sees you, but she doesn't see you, right? But she sees the white woman. Hi, how are you today? How can I help you? She sees you, what you want. You know what I mean? Like we're somehow a threat and we're feared. People are uncomfortable. There's many complexities to our masculinity and that term, again, should be, in my opinion, it doesn't serve us. Yeah. We need a new language. Definitely. What would you say that new language is? What what ideas would you have for that? Uh, well, we can start with culture science and who the soul is black men. <laughs> <laughs> plug, plug, plug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I just, you know, I just think anything constructed can be deconstructed. Mm. So I just think the term masculine or masculinity, it doesn't serve black men anymore. I don't know if it ever did. There's just so much, so many of us with different schools of thoughts and different beliefs and 
morals and values. I don't have a word today. Yeah, <laughs> That's fine. To maybe, yeah. maybe we can create one, but I, yeah, I agree yeah. with you. Um, th- like that was sort of one of the main reasons why I started Black and Raw because, um, and if you check out my website, it shows what we do. And like masculinity, I don't think like just forget about black men, just men in general. I don't think the word masculinity served us anyway, because it's always viewed in one way. And it's like masculinity is this box. If you don't fit in this box, you're not masculine. And right. then, you know, you can add everything else onto it. You can add race, you can add culture, you can add sex, but just the word masculinity is so uh, boxy there's probably a better word for it. It doesn't allow for the nuances. It doesn't allow for there to be something else that can be considered masculine. And so, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think the word masculinity ever served black men at all. I don't even know who created that word, but it it was not created to benefit our humanity. Mm. It's just like now, I mean, when we got here, they, you know, we our African ancestors were enslaved and then they called us slaves. And then we were Negro, and then we were colored, and then we were Afro-American and African-American, and then we were black and you know, you know, Afro-Latino. And like we're still trying to find our, our cultural identity in 2023. Other people don't have that issue. When you're Italian, you're Italian. You're Italian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you're, you know what I'm saying? Like no other people don't have to deal with that, but you still have, if you have a hundred black men in the room. They may not, all, may not all identify as black. Yeah. Oh, yeah. African American. Now you got cisgender and non-binary. And listen, I, I can't keep up. This <laughs> <laughs> is too much. I think I think people are trying to find a way to identify themselves because I, I don't think the identifications that exist, like I we always have um we always have debates in my house and I'm always sort of saying, yeah, but it's a social construction because at uni, when I was doing criminology, um, like we learned that almost everything is a social construction. Like someone said, this is what this is. And it's usually someone that didn't have an understanding of the nuances or that didn't care about the nuances. And so I think everyone is sort of just trying to find how they can identify themselves in a world that really wants to put everybody in boxes. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, those boxes, they don't have enough room for everybody. No. Yeah. And they're, and they're restrictive. They're boxes for a reason. I want to smash yeah. the box and just, I think everyone you know has, can find their own way, their own path. And, you know, hopefully we can learn how to be more accepting of people who are different, but you know, the term masculine, it, it just, it, it doesn't work. In my mm, opinion. Definitely. Um, and so I wanted to find out for you in terms of for your own mental health, um, what has been sort of the strategies or the tools or things that have just sort of helped you on your journey to um to be sort of um to have good mental health, even when there's days where you're struggling, like what sort of helped you come out of, I guess sometimes people describe it as the darkness. I don't know if the darkness is the word, but yeah, to come out of it. Yeah, well, thank you, Tina. That, that's that's a wonderful question. Because um, I think we need to talk more about solutions and tools and choices and options. And um, therapy therapy helped me tremendously. You know, it was the first time in my life that I actually felt safe talking to somebody about my life, you know, my thoughts, my feelings, my trauma, my joys, 
my goals, my aspirations, my fears, my anxieties. Uh, and I know therapy is not a one-size-fits-all situation, but it definitely helped me. Um, in therapy, I learned how to um, utilize the tool of journaling. You know, someone suggested that you just write down your feelings for 15 minutes. Uh, that was very helpful. Um, exercise is very helpful. Nutrition, very helpful. Um, I'm type 2 diabetes now, you know, and I lost 15 pounds. Um, but my weight goes up and down like Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I've had to really be more mindful about what I put into my body. Um, so that's really important. Um, meditation has been a very helpful tool. Just quieting my mind for five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, either listen to the sound of nature, sound of music, or no sound at all. Um, prayer, definitely. That's the first thing I do when I get up is, is, is I pray and I thank God for waking me up. And, you know, I ask for his will to be done. Um, going for a walk, just to clear my mind, clear my thoughts and, you know, being in touch with society, uh, being around nature. You know, I live, like mm. I said, two blocks away from Central Park, so I can sit on the bench and I can watch the kids, right? Watching children is very therapeutic. The seeing their beauty and their joy and their innocence before they get corrupted. <laughs> <laughs> before they seek wild. Yeah. <laughs> that's coming even earlier and earlier, that is. Yeah, yeah. You know, so that's important. Being around nature, seeing the animals. Um, and just the whole aspect of joy, you know, and finding what that joy means to you. Like, for example, today, this morning, I got up and I went to a, a thrift shop. Because mm. I love thrift clothing. I love thrift shops and vintage clothing. And I bought a couple of T-shirts and uh, some shorts. Just something that I feel good about myself. Yeah, you know? doing things you enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. So I just think there's so many things that we can do. But it takes effort, you mm. know. And sometimes I can be so depressed. I don't have the physical energy to actually get up and move my body. I'm just so like stuck in quicksand, you know? So just having those conversations with people, using the phone, calling my friends. The great tool is having friends who, who have compassion and empathy and understanding who know how to listen. Yeah. Huge. Listening is a, Absolutely huge. God gave me two ears and one mouth so I can do twice as much listening and half as much talking. Because sometimes we just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and you can't get it out because you get interrupted, you're cutting me off, you're finishing my sentence. I'm like, can I talk? <laughs> <laughs> just, just let me just breathe. Talk. So let me just, yeah, give me the space. Yeah. So those, those are some of the tools that I have. Yeah, I think those are actually really good tools. And um, I, I everyone's going to realize how much I'm lacking in all the things that I said I'm supposed to do. Um, but meditation is something which I, I hugely vouch for. Um, I use this, I use an app called Headspace and that, that really helps in terms of just, and there's so many different courses on there. I know there's one called Calm as well, which people can use. Um, and just the fact that you can sort of sit down, just, be able to control your breath, be able to be in the moment and, you know, be present. I think it can help us with so many things. Like even when you are getting, you know, like when sometimes some, someone's getting really anxious and they're hyperventilating and they're worried and like all the worries are flowing through their head. I feel like sometimes when you've got the tools of meditation or prayer or understanding, okay, let me go for a walk right now. Or, you know, a lot of people talk about grounding. Um, and I, I like to sort of, um, go out onto the grass barefoot and there's so much research out there, which shows that like our, 
our our synapses um sort of connect with the earth and sort of gr- like literally ground you um one nature is mad and the world is mad and how it works with our brains is also mad as well but it's crazy that there are just small things in which you can do um in terms of you said going out for nature seeing kids seeing how happy they are and full of joy it just reminds you that there is joy in your life like even if things are going dark for you i know a lot of people also say practice gratitude as well and when you do these things it sort of reminds you that okay the world isn't like it isn't all dark and scary there is light there is hope there is joy and i think those are the things that can sort of get you out of those situations I'm glad you mentioned gratitude because um, someone suggested that I write a gratitude list, mm. which I had never heard of before. And this guy, he, he said, I want you to go home, write down 20 things you're grateful for and call me back in a half an hour. And, and I did, you know, and I've been doing that consistently every 90 days for the last 28 years. Right. I write down 20 new people, places, and things in my life that I'm grateful for. And that does something to my spirit. It continues with awakening my spirit and lets me know that God is working with me. I'm not alone. Uh, and that there are people who really do love me and accept me for who I am. And I can get my needs met. And also number one more thing to Tino is um is laughter, mm. right? Laughter is a healing tool. Um I, I enjoy comedy. So sometimes when I'm feeling depressed, or I'm feeling sad, or I'm feeling detached or uncomfortable, I'll put on Richard Pryor, you know, or Robin Harris or Patrice O'Neill or Segway Entertainer, Eddie Murphy, you know, and the laughter, it just does something to my body and it kind of gets me out of that, that darkness, you know, and I start to feel human again, mm-hmm. that little kid. Cause when kids are laughing, it's just, it's just pure joy. Yeah. Yeah. But then sometimes an adult will come on, come along and say something like, uh, you know, go sit down or pick up your toys or whatever. And then you, now you get mad. <laughs> you go from laughter to rage just like that. And before you know it, I don't like her. <laughs> yeah, she took away my joy. I don't yeah, vibe that. Yeah, I don't vibe yeah. That. and that can affect how you go into the classroom because now you have anxiety about, okay, I don't, I'm afraid to go in here because she's going to hurt my feelings. Mm. And then she's going to do it in front of all the kids. It's going to make me feel embarrassed and humiliated. So I'm not going to school today. And, you know, so we get the wrong lesson because we weren't given, you know, the right type of love. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I, I mean, I'm not a parent, um, not yet. And I know, I, I know it's probably quite hard as well, but, and I think people are sort of doing the best they can with the tools they have, but, I think there definitely are behaviors and stuff that parents display towards their children. I definitely, you maybe don't think of the negative impact, but I think it definitely does. Like, I think one thing in African households, um, which is sort of, I'm hoping it's changing now, but definitely when I was younger, it was sort of uh, children should be seen, not heard. And if you want to say something as a child, you know, you sort of just get shut down and it's like, oh no, you're being rude or, you know, the, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a child. And the impact that that still can have is you as an adult, you, I've even seen it with myself. If I want to say something and I'm just like, oh, it's not even worth it. I'm just like, even if I get a shout out or if I just get ignored, it's not, it's not even worth it to be honest with you. So I'll just leave it and go upstairs and just 
do whatever I'm going to do just to forget about it. But yeah, it, it starts off from when you're a child. And, you know, I think children should be given a space to, you know, be able to say what they, what they think, be able to say how they feel and not get shut down immediately because then you're not allowing your child to have the confidence to speak for themselves and say stuff. I think, I think I probably like, I'm not bashing my parents. I absolutely love my parents. Um, but I think as they've gotten older, they became a lot more chill. Um, but I think as the firstborn, I maybe didn't get the most chillest parents. Um, love you guys. Cause I know my dad listens to every episode. Um, <laughs> so love How you guys. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I have a little brother and a little sister. My sister's 17 and my brother's uh, turning 19 soon. Maybe he already is 19. Think. And you're the oldest? Yeah, and I'm the oldest, yeah. What's it like being the oldest? Oh, someone asked me this the other day, actually. Um, it's It's interesting because you sort of feel like you feel like a parent at times, especially when my siblings were younger. Um, like the gap between me and my brother is six years old. Is six years and then my sister's eight years so like even when then when my sister was born my brother never let me hold him or play with him um my parents actually said a really funny story that when he came out and when i saw him when it was just a proper baby um because i was praying for a brother like i was there like i want a brother i want a brother i want a brother i think i wanted someone to play with um and then when when he when i saw him my parents were like yeah you said is that it? <laughs> Cause I was like, <laughs> was he not going to be ready made to play with? Um, so my brother didn't really let me interact with him and play with him when he was younger. Um, I think that maybe, um, I think now our relationship has definitely grown. Um, and we're a lot closer, but I think at the beginning it sort of didn't make us as close. Um, but I can't blame him for that. He was a baby. Um, but my sister, she, she, I was like, I was proper. I would always take care of my sister. She would suck on my thumb. Um, when she was a baby, like she would let me hold her and stuff like that. And I, I think I have a really good relationship with both of my siblings, but I think with my sister, I think because we're also quite similar, our relationship is quite strong, sort of just naturally. Whereas I think with my brother, we've maybe had, it's taken more time to grow with it. Um, so you feel like a parent when you sort of feel like a pseudo parent because you're not a parent, but then like you have, like you have the responsibilities of sort of being a big brother and a big parent. And I always say that firstborns are the guinea pig children because right. our parents just sort of experimented with, with the firstborns as like, does that work? Does that work? Mm-mm-mm. That didn't work with this one. So let's try, let's try something else with the other one. Right. Um, and I think as my parents have gotten older, their emotional intelligence has definitely grown. And obviously with experience, because my parents had me when my mom was 22 and my dad was 25. So they had me quite young. I couldn't, if I had a kid now, I couldn't, I could not imagine, you know, what that would be like. But I think with my brother and sister, they definitely got sort of the more chill parents, but that was the more older, wiser, emotionally intelligent parents. Um, and like I said, I'm not bashing my parents here because I love them to death. <laughs> like they're the best. Um, but I, I definitely think that firstborns usually sort of get the brunt of it. Um, but you know, Did your brother and sister ever feel like you were treated that they that they were treated unfairly because you're older, that you got somehow you benefited because you're older. You got more money, more time, more opportunities. 
I do yeah. want. I do wonder about that actually. Um, I, that's a good. That's a good thought. I think I nev- definitely need to have a conversation with them about that. I, I think because I had sort of six years with my parents as an only child, so I think by the time my parents came along, I was like, ah, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm okay. Like you, you sort of then also go into Big Brother mode. It's like, yeah, no, I'm 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 sort of okay with all the attention that I got for those six years. But I think for my brother and for my sister. Because they're only two years apart, I think for them, there's a lot more competition between each other and a lot more sort of like, um, I think definitely when they were younger, jockeying for mom and dad's attention. Um, So I don't know. I don't know whether they think that with me, really. Um, But obviously, as first born. You may not want to say it out loud. Yeah. Because I've got three brothers and three sisters. I'm the fifth out of seven. Mm. And uh, I remember one year, there was this movie called The Exorcist. Exodus was rated R, so you had to be 17. Now, I was 15, and my oldest sister, one of my oldest sisters was 16. So my parents took my two older brothers and two older sisters to this R-rated movie, but they didn't take me. (laughs) So I was pissed off. I'm like, okay, she's 16. It's an R-rated movie. You got to be 17. Why are you taking her? You're not taking me. (laughs) Yeah. It's only one year apart as well. There's not that much difference either. It's just one year. (laughs) (laughs) So I was so mad. When they came home, I didn't want to hear nothing about the movie. You know, I just, oh my God. So something that small, I mean, you'll be amazed at how your perception of, okay, because you're older, you get a bigger allowance, right? So, you know, you get $10, I get $3. I don't think that's fair, but because you're older, they assume or they want you to be more responsible. And there are dynamics, you know, there's sibling rivalry. And yeah, I definitely think also as the older, as the older brother, you get um, as the older sibling, you get held to a higher standard. Like when things would happen, it's like, well, he did this to me. And it's like, yeah, be the older one. You've got to be the more responsible one, you you know? And I think those are definitely good life lessons. But like when you're a kid, that's not what you want to hear. It's just like, no, they've, they've upset me as well. Like I'm, I'm annoyed too. Where's, where's the, you shouldn't have done this. So I definitely think there is, um, there is, there is an interesting sort of relationship in terms of where you are as younger older siblings. I think there's loads of, um, research would show that like the older siblings older siblings are usually more likely to be leaders and more sort of I don't know if more driven but like definitely sort of maybe have more discipline and things like that I'll, I'll put I'll put some I'll put something into the show notes for people to go and check out on that <laughs> on the statistics but yeah I think it's quite interesting the dynamic of being an older brother I will say yeah yeah I think that's worthy of a film <laughs> You know, I really do, because I mean, there's so many people who can identify with not just being the older person, but how they are perceived by their younger siblings and how they were treated by their parents or their neighbors or people at school. Because, you know, we all went to the same school. So they knew my older brother and siblings. So they expected me to be like them, but I'm not like them the same way. We have the same last name, but, you know, I play tennis. They play basketball. Why do you play tennis? That's a sissy sport. So you get that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I had to deal with the residue or the expectation of being younger. And they thought I should be like them. And I'm trying to carve out my own path. Like I like Elton John as much as I like Marvin Gaye. But because I like Elton John, people say I want I wanted to be white. 
This is crazy. This is America. I'm telling you. Yeah. When you're black and you live in a certain neighborhood and you like pop and rock, people accuse you of betraying your own people. Yeah, I I got that quite a lot when with my friends I used to. I love Frank Sinatra, one of the best jazz musicians ever to exist. Um, and I got that a lot for from people, just from friends as well. It's like, oh, you don't listen to like Kanye or J. Cole or, you know, you don't really listen to rap. And I was like, well, I do. But like Frank Sinatra is one of my favorite musicians. Right. I, lo- right. I, I, I love jazz. Like, that's just it. Um, and, you know, which is and one thing as well. I remember I was doing the um, I went with my girlfriend to do this. Uh, she was doing the TEDx talk audition and um they had done all the auditions and then they're like, oh yeah, if anyone else wants to talk, go up. Um, so then they're like, oh, go and, go and tell them about black and rural. Go and tell them about black and rural. So I was like, okay, 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 okay. Um, and then I remember I said that and then the girl, there's a black girl in front of me and she was like, what the hell? Like, I was, just, and I was also like, yeah, what the hell? Like, it was ridiculous because jazz is also, I mean, black people sort of invented jazz. So it was a bit like, what? Um, but as a kid, you don't have that thought of like, ah, forget what you say. I'm just going to love what I love. It, it hits you harder um, when you're younger because I think you're still finding out. You're still finding yourself. So when people put labels on you, it hits a lot harder. Which is another aspect of, of masculinity, because in our society, people have certain they assign identities to be masculine. So if you're masculine, you're supposed to like hip hop. Mm. Right. If you like pop music, that's supposed to be unmasculine. I don't know who made up those these rules, but that's how it is in our society. I love um, Three Dog Night, but I also love Earth, Wind & Fire. And I love them equally both, but growing up in my... I lived in uh, Chicago, which I was born and raised. Chicago is the most racially segregated city in society. And um, it was like 40% Black, 40% White. And other people we didn't care about. <laughs> this is how it was. So that's not good. Birthplace of Obama. Was he from Hawaii? So like, growing up, I liked different types of music, but that my love for music was not respected mm. because of my gender. Now, if you're a girl, it's okay to like Cindy Lauper and Patti LaBelle. But if you're a boy and you like Elton John and George Michael, people question your sexuality, right? They don't question your sexuality if you like you know, um, uh, Katy Perry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like they, they don't, but boys get questioned about their taste in music because of their gender in ways that girls don't. And that's another reason why masculinity really doesn't work for us because it's just not really, it's not genuine, it's not heartfelt. And it doesn't, like you said, all the layers and nuances, there's so much to us, to our humanity, but Popular culture doesn't show you all the different layers. They show you LL Cool J, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You don't Thank get you. no. Two so pack. anybody else is somehow less than and deviant or suspect. And so you really can't wear pink. You know? Yeah. I love wearing I love pink. bright colors. I'm a Leo. Yeah. But if you wear bright colors, your manhood is challenged. It, it's. It's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. I recently, um, my dad was, um, it, my, my sister bought like, you know, those Udo hoodies, like the long ones, which are like fluffy inside. People wear them a lot in winter. Um, 
And my dad was like, oh, does everyone, because he wanted to buy one for himself because he saw my sisters. And so he kept taking my sister's one. So he was like, right, I'm going to buy myself one for this year. And then he was like, oh, does anybody else want one? So he bought everyone in the family one. And at first I saw a, because um, I love bright colors as well. I love wearing color. And there was a Cameroon um, one, um, sort of ruby color, um, like a dark maroon. And I was like, oh, I want that one. That looks really nice. Um, but then it was sold out. So I was like, oh, I was like, oh, I kind of want the pink one, actually. Like, I'll, I'll get the pink one. And then, like, my even like even even in my family, my sister, my dad, my sister was like, dad, you can't let him buy the pink one. And I was like, why can't I buy the, why can't I have the pink one? She's like, boys don't wear pink. Like, well, why are you getting a pink one? And I was just like, I'm going to get the pink and I like the pink. Okay. The pink's great. <laughs> I was also like, I was like, I was also like, I don't want to be boring. Everyone gets black and gray. Right, and right, like, I was right. just like, I want to, I want color. Like there's nothing wrong with wearing color. It shouldn't be genderized. And you know, I mean, I think as black men, we look great in color. It suits our complexion. So why can't we just diversify what we have without it being labeled as, um, you know, being labeled as not manly just doesn't make sense. It's just, that's why, that's why I want to smash this box that we keep having (laughs) and just break it all down. Yeah. Yeah. We need a whole new paradigm shift. Mm, Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so Mark, I've, um, I've loved this whole conversation that we've had and I, I just wanted to ask you one final question, which I ask all my guests, um, and say if there's a young black boy that's listening to this conversation, how can something that, you know, help them with an understanding of themselves? Hmm. Wow. Well, I know now that I am loved. I know now that I am trustworthy. I know now that I am valued. I know now that I am beautiful. Uh, I know now that I am confident. Uh, I know now that I am worthy. Um, I know now that I am accepted. You know, I don't have to dim my, my light. You know, I can be quirky. I can be a geek. I can be weird. I can be unconventional I can wear pink and orange and yellow after fall (laughs) (laughs) and not give a fuck excuse me (laughs) you know I can just be all of me that was on the inside that I was trying to mask on the outside because I wanted you to like me Mm. and I don't have to do things because I think if I do it you'll like me I do it because it makes me feel good about who I am yeah Bro, 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 bro. So yeah, Mark, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and um, is there anything you'd like to plug uh, before we go? I know your book as well, but is there anything else you want to plug too? Well, just, I mean, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, I also have a website. Um, the website is one word, cultural silence, wounded souls.com. Uh, on the website, um, You'll find there's a media page where you'll find a conversation, poetry, um, uh, videos, um, film. And the resources page is very powerful because there are other books you can read. There are other podcasts you can listen to. There are other um, helplines you can call. There are videos you can watch. There are service providers you can access. Organizations you connect with. So I wanted this book to be a community resource where people can 
get access. A lot of times we don't have access, we don't have the insurance or the funds. Like you don't necessarily have to have money to have a conversation. Mm. And I want people to feel like, okay, this is something that I can actually do. If I need somebody to talk to, now I know who to call, where to go, and I'm okay. No, bro, bro, bro. So yeah, I'll put um, your website into the show notes so people didn't get it um, as well. So you can just click onto that and check it out and um, go and check out my website, guys, because I always put like little extra resources on there um, and little tidbits as well. I love adding YouTube videos onto there because I watch YouTube all the time. So <laughs> it definitely does help. So yeah, thank you, Mark, for coming onto the podcast. Um, and thank you, I too. hope, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. No, it's all good. All it's right. all good. Peace and love. Peace. So guys, that is the end of the episode. I really hope you liked this episode. I really enjoyed talking to Mark. And I think anyone that is suffering with mental health or that is experiencing hardship, you know, there is hope out there. You know, Mark was talking about some of the things that he does that brings him hope and that brings him joy. And just try to remember those things when you are going through a rough time. I know it's easy for me to just sit here and say, think of the happy times. But, you know, I think that generally does have positive effect on your mental health so i really hope you guys enjoyed this episode if you want to go and find out mark's book um i will definitely put that that'll be in the show notes so definitely be in the show notes but for anybody that you know (laughs) maybe just wants to be able to find it quickly it's cultural silence and wounded souls black men speak about mental health so that is really all i have to say guys if you also go into the show notes but i'll tell you go onto my website as well i always put extra resources and stuff that we've talked about in the episode so go and check that out for me and yeah i i don't think i have much more to say other than thank you very much for listening and we will talk soon